Thank you, church, for being with us this morning. I'm going to go ahead and dive in as the kids go out. we got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so you might want to put your seatbelt on and buckle up. We're going to begin this morning with a question. How has the pandemic impacted the church? Something changed in our culture, right? Back in March of 2020, when the COVID pandemic first hit, nearly everything was impacted. Public health, certainly, but the government, society, culture, business, our economy certainly was impacted. The schools were impacted, and yes, even the church. Here at at Living Hope, for 11 weeks, back in March of 2020, we didn't have any in-person gathering. For many churches, it was a lot longer than, than only 11 weeks. And that does something. I'll be honest with you, that does something to a church community. And, and I think for decades to come, sociologists, eventually historians are going to be looking back at this period of history, looking at the impact the pandemic has had, the, the impact the response has had. But even now, most pastors will tell you that the pandemic has had a major impact on the life of the church. See, across the country, people responded differently to their situation, their situation in their local community and their local church. Responded differently to whatever length of period there was for most churches where there wasn't in-person worship. And people responded differently. Some people didn't like how their particular local church handled COVID. And so they left and found a new church. And, And honestly, that's not all bad. Sometimes people need to move and find a new church home. Some people realize, you know what, I just don't fit in my church. In that period of time when you weren't seeing people and you weren't connected, people realized... Look, unrelated to COVID, I just don't think I fit here. I don't think this is where God has me. And some people moved on to find a new church. And there were some people that did that, and we prayed for them, and we blessed them. There were some people that were very connected before the pandemic to their local church, very involved. And they they really hated being cut off from the church, from their family. And they longed to be back. And, And when the doors opened back up, they came back with even greater investment, even greater longing to be in the local church. There were some people prior to COVID that were on the fringes of the church. And the time apart, the time when they couldn't connect, even in the ways that they had been, realized, made them realize how much they wanted to get plugged in. And, and those people have, have, have desired to get more involved. Some people had, had never been involved in a church, maybe never had a faith, or maybe were never connected to a local community. But as they found themselves isolated in life, isolated from work and family and friends, they realized that they had this longing, a longing to connect with God, a longing to connect with people. And so some of you have come to the local church because you've realized, realized you don't want to live isolated. Some people found, you know what, I didn't really miss church. Some people were separated and couldn't come to church and they said, you know, I, don't really, I didn't really miss it. And they started to realize, you know what, you can get a lot of laundry done in those two hours on Sunday morning. Maybe I don't need the church. And many of these people have not walked away from Jesus, but they've just said, you know what? I don't need the church anymore. Some people discovered, you know what? I can get all the church that I need online. And I don't need the the hassle, the mess, the time commitment of coming to a specific body. And none of those categories that I just mentioned are hypothetical. I I could name people that I know in each of those various situations. But there are, in fact, some Christians, even some churches that have decided that meeting together in a building, as we are doing now on a Sunday morning, is unnecessary. Some would say it's an outdated relic. After all, what what more could you want? You got you got your Bible, right? You you can find your favorite uh, Christian worship artist on whatever app you use. You can pull up your favorite online preacher. You can go to online church anytime you want. In fact, you can go multiple times a week, as some people do. 
And, and right now there's a raging debate going on that you may or may not be aware of, but about the place of online worship, about the place of virtual church in the life of the Christian, in the life of the history of the church. Some local churches have started online services and are building virtual congregations and, and hiring online pastors to shepherd those virtual congregations. But is that really God's vision for the church? And as you can probably tell, it's not the approach that Living Hope is taking, nor that we would recommend. I think there's something missing from that approach. But, but I also want to just stop and say it doesn't mean that God is not using it, right? As, as Paul wrote in Philippians, Paul was responding to ministry approaches that he didn't agree with. But he said, if Christ is proclaimed, then I rejoice. And so I, I, I'm going to rejoice if Christ is proclaimed. But as with most things here at Living Hope, we want to try to take a more moderate approach. Recognizing that online worship is not the same. It can never be the same as active, in-person engagement in a local church community. And yet, and yet, having an online live stream and, and a video service can be a valuable resource. In fact, you may notice that we still have a camera in the back of the room, that we're still live streaming our worship services. And the elders are grateful for the live stream. We're grateful that God has used it in a time of crisis and that he continues to use it. In fact, while a large number of people have returned to in-person worship, we still have a faithful contingent of people active in online weekly worship. And due to personal health concerns, due to ongoing COVID risks, some still do not feel safe returning to large indoor gatherings and many of these people in our church family are still active in the life of living hope attending life groups either outside or on zoom and they're making the best of a difficult situation a situation that that they still consider to be temporary even though the whole thing's gone on far longer than any of us could have ever thought possible but they're longing they're longing to be with their church family because they realize that watching at home is not the same now look, I want you guys to know that the elders and deacons talked for months and months, meetings and meetings, hours and hours, didn't we guys? Discussions about what are we going to do with the live stream once COVID is over? Because we never had any intention of live streaming our worship services. Now first of all, I'm not sure that COVID will ever be over, right? But we had to figure out what, what is our approach going to be? And we have decided, at least for now, that, that we will continue the live stream. It has been a useful resource, and we believe it will continue to be a useful resource. Because there's always going to be people that are homesick, new moms that have just given birth, icy roads that prevent people from getting to church. We've, we've actually found that many new visitors watch our online worship service before they even visit in person. Some of you have done that. Right? You're like, well, I'm not going to buy a car without watching an online video. Why would I go visit a church without watching what I'm getting myself into? Many of you have found that it's been a great resource for evangelism, for discipleship. You've maybe been struck by a worship song on Sunday morning, or you've been particularly hit by a sermon, and you thought, this friend, this family member could, could be encouraged by this. And so you've sent a clip, you forwarded on a video to someone you love. It's a great resource. But... It's not our vision. It's not our vision that live stream worship would be anyone's primary long-term connection to the local church. But, but look, the reality is while, while, while live stream is new, using media to spread the gospel is nothing new. They've always, we've always found creative ways to reach people that were out of reach. Since the 40s, worship and preaching have been heard broadcast on the radio. Back in the 70s, church, churches started tape ministry. 
Anybody ever help out with the tape ministry at their church, right? As soon as the service was done, you take the tape, you put it in the little, if you were like a big, big high-tech church, you'd have four spots, right? You could make four tapes at one time and you'd copy them and hand them out to people, right? Since the 80s, people, churches have been video recording and sharing their services. And even before all of this technology, sermons were published in books and read and the gospel was spread through letters. This is all forms of media, But none of this media is the same. The Apostle John, when he's writing to those that he loves in in 2 John 1, he says, Although I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. See, it's gathering together face to face with believers in the church. That's when gospel ministry is complete and full of joy. And so, yes, online resources and live stream worship services are wonderful resources. They can help us through a crisis. They can serve a shut-in. But it's not the same as going to church. It's not the same as being with the church. It's not the same as being the church. And and, and I don't believe it's God's full biblical vision for the church. Because here at, at Living Hope, we believe in the church. In fact, for the next four weeks, we're going to be doing a series on the church. We're going to look at and investigate. You can throw that series logo up. We're going to look at the New Testament teachings on the church. What does the Bible teach us about the priority, the importance, and the beauty of the church? You can see the the four topics we're going to cover in the next four weeks. This morning, if I can get through about 45 minutes worth of introduction, we're going to hopefully talk about the bride of Christ. That the church is the bride of And we're going to look at the question this morning of why is the church essential? Next week, we're going to talk about the church as the household of God. How does the church relate together? And we'll talk next week about leadership, about elders and deacons. We'll talk about church membership. We'll talk about everybody's favorite topic, church discipline. And in three weeks, we'll talk about the body of Christ. How does the church grow together? We're going to look at the essential role that each of you play and the gifts that you've been given and how we can grow and mature together. And we'll talk finally about the church as the temple of God. What is the purpose of the church on earth? And we'll talk about the three primary purposes of the church. To worship, discipleship, and evangelism. Now look, I want to say from the get-go, this series is not meant to be critical or to tear down what other churches are doing. That's, that's not my purpose. The, the, the purpose of the series is also not to guilt or coerce people into coming to church. We simply want to lay out a biblical vision for the beauty, the glory, and the necessity of the local church. We want to help you fall in love again with the church. To be excited about what God is doing in His church and to give our lives to the church that Jesus loves. As a resource, we're going to be looking at this book called Rediscover Church. There's uh, about 20 or so copies on the back table subtitle is why the body of christ is essential essential and colin hansen and jonathan lehman have written this book as a response to the pandemic and the impact that it has had particularly in the u.s on the church and and they say this read along with me this book aims to help you rediscover church so that you both understand what a church is and in turn discover the richness of living as a brother or sister in the family of god The joy of living as one part of Christ's body, united to other parts of the body. And the countercultural power of living as one brick in the holy temple where God dwells on earth. We want you to experience all these benefits and blessings, both for your own sake and for the sake of your non-Christian friends and neighbors. 
More than anything else, your non-Christian friends need not just your gospel words, but also a gospel community that testifies to the truth of those gospel words. So grab a copy from the back table, order one online, read it, pass it on to a friend or family member that needs to be reminded why Jesus and the church are essential. See, we believe in the priority and the necessity of the local church. See, since Jesus ascended back up into heaven and sent the Spirit, He has been at work in His church. Over the last 2,000 years, lots of change has changed. Forms and traditions and rituals and styles have all changed and adapted across cultures, across countries. But one thing has not changed, the need, the importance, the beauty of the church. Brothers and sisters, the church is ancient, but she is not outdated. The church is traditional, but that tradition is grounded in the Word of God, full of the Spirit of God, full of life. Now you may say, wait a minute, we meet in a YMCA, we got electric guitars and projector screens. This may all feel modern, it may feel contemporary, but make no mistake about it, what we are doing is an ancient, biblical Christian tradition. In fact, since the 3rd or 4th century, Christians have been reciting the value of of the church in the Apostles' Creed. We're going to recite this later on in our service. At the end of the, the Creed, it says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. The word Catholic, lower C, in the Apostles' Creed means universal. We believe in the Holy Universal Church, the communion, the fellowship, the gathering together of, of the saints of God. So I want to move now to the second question that we're going to look at this morning. What is the church? Because if we're going to, if we're going to spend some time in the next four weeks looking at the church, we need to figure out what, what actually is the church. What is the church? To answer this question, we're going to begin by looking at Matthew chapter 16. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 16, or you can look on the screen. And here we're going to see Jesus, he plays a little game of family feud. I bet you didn't know that. He plays some family feud with his disciples. In essence, he says, we asked a hundred people, who is the son of man? What were the top ten answers, right? And so he's going to quiz the, the, the disciples. The son of man is a messianic title. Now look, Jesus knows who he is. He knows what people think about him. But he's asking his disciples this question to set them up for the heart of the issue. Listen to what... The word of God says, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And we all said, Amen, Amen. So the disciples, they give their various answers for what the crowds of people say. And then Jesus asked them the real question. But who do you say that I am? Guys, we all have to answer that question this morning. 
Listen, in love, I say to you, it doesn't matter what your girlfriend thinks about Jesus. It doesn't matter ultimately what your parents think about Jesus. It doesn't matter ultimately what social media tells you. The, the question is, who do you say? What, what, who do you believe Jesus to be in your heart? Who has he revealed himself to be to you? That's the real question. And Simon speaks up and he says, you are the Christ. Christ is a, is a Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one of God, the son of the living God, he says. And Jesus calls him blessed. He affirms, Simon, you didn't figure this out on your own. The Heavenly Father revealed this to you, Jesus says. And then we get to the crux of the passage for our purposes this morning. Look at verse 18. Jesus says to Simon, I will now call you Peter, Petros, a form of the Greek word for rock. He says, and on this rock I will build my church and death and hell itself are not going to overpower my church. Jesus is going to build his church. Jesus there, that word ekklesia, that we translate church, it's a Greek word, it's an existing word that Jesus uses to describe what he's going to build. And it's a combination, ekklesia, ek and kalos. Ek meaning out from and kalos meaning called. So in its most literal sense, the word church means those called out from. Now in Greek culture, it was, it was used to refer to an assembly, to a gathering. And Jesus says this, he says, this movement, this messianic community that I am building will be a church. Followers, people of God on earth who are called out of the world to gather together in Jesus' name. That's what a church is, called out of the world, gathered in Jesus' name. We see three things in this passage about the church. First, we see that the church is built on the gospel confession. See, Peter, in confessing Jesus as the one true Savior of mankind, becomes the rock. Dwayne Johnson jokes later. Becomes the rock on which the church is built. Now, Ephesians will go on to say that the apostles and the prophets of the first generation, they are the foundation of the church. Jesus himself is the very cornerstone, but the apostles and prophets are the foundation. And, and listen, as Peter himself would later write, all those who believe in Jesus, we now are living stones built into God's temple. That Peter was the first rock, and we now are each living stones of the temple of the church of God. And each new generation of the church is built on the gospel confession. Jesus is Lord and Savior, built on the gospel confession of the previous generation. Secondly, we see in this passage that the church is Jesus' plan to bring salvation to earth and it cannot be stopped. And the last 2,000 years have proven this. Nothing can stop the church. You look at the persecution of the early church, there's no way the movement should have survived. You can look at the doctrinal heresy that the church has battled for the first few hundred years. You look at the corruption in the church. Look at the rise of modern technology, the spread of false religion, secularism that's on the rise. You can look at what has happened to the church in America, and no offense, but, but even lazy, spoiled Americans can't stop the church. Not a pandemic, not the devil, not the gates of hell or death itself can stop what Jesus is doing on earth. Amen? Jesus said, I will build my church. And I don't know about you, but I'm not going to doubt him. That's what he said. I am not going to doubt him you look at the book of acts you see this ecclesia unfold as the gospel spreads as christians gather together in churches you see all three things that we see highlighted there actually i forgot the third one i'm jumping ahead the third one is that the church holds the keys to the kingdom of heaven right the, the church carries the gospel 
that the way that we enter into God's kingdom, it's faith in Jesus as Savior, faith in His death and His resurrection that brings forgiveness of sins and eternal life to people. And as the church believes the gospel, lives the gospel, as we proclaim the gospel to the world, we offer people the keys into God's kingdom, into God's family, into eternal life. Now, we're going to see these three realities unfold in the book of Acts. You read through the book of Acts, chapters 1 one through 4, you see that the disciples of Jesus meet together in Jerusalem. They meet in the temple. They meet in people's homes for teaching, for prayer, for fellowship. They share their resources with one another. And the Spirit works miraculously. And as they are gathered together there in the early days of the life of the church, they are a testimony to the city of Jerusalem. And what happens? They grow. The church grows. In chapter 9, we read in in Acts that the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was being built up. Jesus is building His church. In chapter 11, we read that the gospel spreads and the apostles met with the church and taught in Antioch. And in Antioch, in the church there, it's when Christians were, the disciples of Jesus were first called Christians. In chapter 14, we read how the apostles travel from town to town and they're gathering the church together and appointing elders for them in every church, we read. The movement builds. In chapter 16 of Acts, it says that the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. What's happening in the book of Acts? Jesus is building His church. So back to the original question. What is the church? What exactly makes something a church? Is it, is it a certain type of building? Well, to be a church, you've got to have a steeple and pews and stained glass and a big wooden pulpit. I certainly hope not, right? Because that doesn't put us in a very good position. Maybe it's not a certain type of building. Maybe it's a certain type of music or certain rituals. You know, you've got to have an organ and singing and you've got to sit, stand, and kneel. Is that what a church is? You say, no, no, it's more modern things. To be a church, you've got to be modern. You've got to have exciting kids' activities and small groups and blogs and video screens and coffee. Is that, is that what makes a church a church? No. What's interesting, if you go back in history in the 1500s, when the Protestant reformers were breaking away from Roman Catholicism, they had to ask this question. What what is a church? If we're no longer going to be associated with the church in Rome, what makes us the true church of Jesus? And their answer usually involved a couple things. It involved the Word of God, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and some form of of leadership, accountability, and, and church discipline. And so taking all of that into consideration, Matt and I worked on a definition this week for you of the church. And here's our best stab at a, at a definition of a church. By the way, all of the slides this morning are uploaded onto the sermon page, so you can write it down if you want, or you can just download uh, the PDF on the uh, church website on this week's sermon page. A local church is an organized and committed family of Christians, led by elders and deacons, who gather regularly to worship Jesus Christ, sit under the teaching of God's Word, practice baptism in the Lord's Supper, love and serve one another, and live out and proclaim the Gospel as a light to the world. Now, I know that's a lot. lot. That's why we're going to take four weeks to unpack this, right? The church is is organized and committed. Yes. People say, I don't like organized religion. I always kind of chuckle and think to myself, would you prefer your religion disorganized? Right? Like, yes, the Bible talks about the church as an organized, committed family of Christians, that there are leaders, there are elders and deacons. We gather regularly to worship Jesus. We sit under the teaching of God's Word. We don't just listen to it, but we submit to it. It leads our lives. We practice together. 
baptism and the Lord's Supper. Next week we're going to celebrate both baptism and the Lord's Supper. We're going to gather together and celebrate these two beautiful expressions that Jesus has have given us. As a church, we love and we serve one another. And then we live out the gospel. Guys, listen. The gospel is not just a list of things on a page that you believe to get you a ticket to heaven. The gospel is how we live. As we live out the gospel, as we proclaim the gospel, we are a light to the world. Now you see in here, there's no mention in here of a building. There's no mention in here of specific programs. Church can be simple. It can be as simple as a dozen people gathered together in a home. That can be a biblical church. And the house church movement is actually flourishing around the world. And, and you know people that don't like big and, and complicated. and uh, Okay. Tell them to, to, to join a house church. A genuine expression of what Scripture expresses. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute, Pastor Tim. What about other church groups? What about other ministries that are faithfully proclaiming the gospel, that are, in fact, leading other people to Christ, but they don't have all these elements? You know, maybe they don't have elders or they don't have, you know, baptism or the Lord's Supper. What about groups like Community Bible Study or Young Life or River Valley Ranch or InterVarsity Christian Fellowship or House of Hope or World Vision? We typically call these parachurch ministries, right? Guys, listen, these parachurch ministries work best not instead of the local church, but in partnership with the local church. In fact, the early formative years of my faith were spent crammed into people's basements in Young Life Ministry. And then in college, I was crammed into dorm rooms in inner varsity. I wouldn't be where I am today without the parachurch ministry. I preached my ser- first sermon in Young Life. Dan, I, I, I got up to preach my senior year of high school. Typically, the Young Life message, what, 12 minutes, right? Literally, after 40 minutes, the Young Life leader got up and made me sit down. And I was like, I think I could do this for the rest of my life. Then in, in college, in university, I got my first experience with leading and organizing ministries and, and, and leading programs and people. We love parachurch ministries. And there are several people here at Living Hope that serve in Young Life, that, that serve week in and week out teenagers in our community and we are thankful for matthew for julie for lindy for dan and we financially support young life and river valley ranch and several other parish church ministries and i would encourage you to pray for these ministries pray for the work that they were doing not to replace the church but as an arm as an extension of the local church amen that with our support and our prayer and our involvement they they reach out into places to people as an arm, as an extension of Christ's church. You see there in our definition that we talk about Christians gathering together, right? Because Christians gathering is essential to what it means to be a church. The concept is embedded in the Greek word ekklesia. We see it in the book of Acts. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he gives them instructions for when you come together as a church. Part of what it means to be a church is to come together. And, and yes, you can find great encouragement listening to worship music in your car. And listening to a sermon while you jog can be wonderfully edifying. And participating with a worship service live stream on your couch, they can all be very encouraging, but none of those things can replace coming together, gathering together with the church. Right? There's no substitute for being with people. And we know this. Right? 
That's why we drive for hours to go see mom and dad or grandmom and granddad, even when we could just as easily FaceTime them. But no, we, we drive to go see them, right? People spend ridiculous amounts of money on NFL tickets, and they go through the hassle of driving in the city and the crowds and parking and going into the stadium. We all know that the view is much better on your TV, right? But people want to be there in person. That's why people, when they're really passionate about a cause... It's not enough to just sign an online petition or write a letter to a senator. What do people do? They gather together in the streets and they protest something. They stand for hours to be with people that are like-minded, to, to further their cause because there's something about being gathered with people. In the book Rediscover Church, Hansen and Lehman point out that God has made us both body and soul. And listen, listen, the state of your soul is affected by the state of your five senses. Our physical surroundings, the people that we're with, impact our soul and our heart. And our worship services, if you've ever left here on a Sunday morning and felt like, man, that was profound. Man, God met with us. The Holy Spirit was present and something spiritually profound happened. The reason worshiping the Lord with the church is so spiritually profound is because of our physical surroundings, our physical gathering. And Lehman writes this in the book, regularly assembling or gathering makes a church a church. This doesn't mean a church stops being a church when the people aren't gathered any more than a soccer team stops being a team when the members are not playing. The point is, regularly gathering together is, a ne- is necessary for a church to be a church. Just like a team has to play in order to be a team. You get that? Christians need the church. There are no healthy Lone Ranger Christians. Christianity is not an individual sport. It's a team sport. Now, of course, I, I want to say and make it clear, you can be a true born-again follower of Jesus without any connection to a local church. But I would also say this, it's not a healthy, long-term, sustainable way to live. We cannot download the Christian life, we must live it, experience it in the church community. The regular physical gatherings of the church are essential to our growth, and they're essential for our witness to the world. See, when the gospel is proclaimed, the world hears it, but through the church, the world also gets to see the gospel lived out and the world needs to both hear the gospel and see the gospel in the body of Christ. Now you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, Tim, are you saying if I show up and check a box and go to church for 90 minutes on Sunday morning that I'm a good Christian, I'm living out my faith, I'm, I'm doing all that scripture expects and requires of me. You don't know me very well. If you think that's what I'm saying. Yes. The, The Sunday morning worship gathering is the center of church life, but it's not the entirety of church life. We say that Sunday mornings may be the heart of the church, but the circulatory system of the church are our life groups, our accountability groups, those one-on-one coffee dates and dinner get-togethers and phone calls and, and serving neighbors together, praying together, living life together. The church is the totality of the Christian life The community of Christians worshiping, growing, serving, testifying together. That is the church. And and the church is God's idea. It was Jesus was the one that founded it. He said he's going to build it. 
And the scriptures teach us that the church is essential, it's beautiful, it's, it's necessary, it's unstoppable. The church is invaluable and we should cherish the church. Why should we cherish the church? That's the third question we're going to look at this morning. All of that was introducing the series. Now I'm going to do like an abbreviated little teaching on why we should cherish the church. And here's, here's why. Because the church is the bride of Christ. Jesus, the bridegroom, desperately and dearly loves his bride. Now, of course, not everyone agrees that the church is essential. Not everyone agrees that the church is beautiful. Not even all Christians cherish the church. The Barna Group, back in 2017, did a study on those who self-identified as people who love Jesus, but not the church. Some of you are like, yeah, I know people like that. Or some of you are like, I used to be like that. Some of you are like, if you don't hurry up and wrap up this sermon, I'm going to be in that group. Okay? And here's what they found about this group of people that love Jesus but not the church. Ten, five years ago, it was about 10% of the population. Now, that's pre-pandemic. Can you imagine what it is now? 10% of the population said that they had a personal faith in Jesus but no connection to a local church. Over 80% of those people are over the age of 30. Interestingly enough, geographically, they're spread out pretty evenly around our nation with the exception of the Northeast. Because in the Northeast, they not only don't love the church, they don't love Jesus. But for those who love Jesus but not the church, their spirituality is an almost completely personal and private reality. They say it has nothing to do with you, with my community. I don't need the church. It's a personal thing. Now, how do you think Jesus feels about people that love him but not his church? Well, think about it like this. Let's say a friend of mine comes to me one day and says, man, I love being your friend. It's hypothetical. I just try to imagine it. Somebody says, I love being your friend. We have so much in common. It's great spending time with you. And I want you to know I will always be, for, be there for you. But I also want you to know this. I find your wife really irritating. And, and honestly, man, I mean, I know we're friends, but hear me. I just can't stand being around that woman. She has just too many glaring faults, right? Now, again, this is hypothetical. I know this part is, is you know, fantasy. And, and this friend then proceeds to never come over to my house. And he says, I will only see you when your wife is not around. And then he proceeds to be constantly critical of my wife. You thinking the same thing I'm thinking, Eddie? That's the end of that friendship, Right? That, that ain't never going to happen. I'm not going to be friends with somebody like that. Now listen, Jesus is a lot more patient with me. I, I, I grant you that. But how do you think he feels about people who, who say they love him but, but can't stand to be around his bride? I think he wants his followers to not only love him but to love his bride. Turn, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, we get this beautiful exposition of the church as the bride of Christ. Look, even in the Old Testament, God began to describe himself as a husband to his people. In Jesus' ministry, he told parables. He described himself multiple times in his kingdom as a groom coming for his bride. We read in the book of Revelation, in fact, that the return of Jesus is, is, is the return of a bridegroom coming for his beloved bride. And we see this laid out in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, we typically emphasize this passage's instructions for husbands and wives. But I want you to hear it again as a beautiful expression of Jesus' love for his bride. 
Listen to what the Word of God says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the church, even as Christ... Excuse me. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Three things I want you to see in this passage about the church as the bride of Christ. First of all, Christ loved loves the church and gave himself up for her. We see this clearly in verse 25. Now, yes, Jesus loves us individually, knows us and calls us by name, but he loves us collectively as a single unit. And the passage says that just as a husband and wife become one flesh in the marriage union, and the passage goes on to quote from from Genesis. In verse 29, we see that Jesus loves and cherishes his church. Why? Because she is part of his body. There's a one flesh connection between Jesus and the church. And Jesus values and prizes his body. No one despises his own body. And Jesus says, that's who my people are. So Christ has this beautiful love for the church. What does it drive him to do? To give himself up for us. To lay down his own life as a sacrifice, as a ransom. Because the church, God's people, were full of sin. Full of blemishes. And so Jesus died as our substitute. Amen? Believe that. Believe that for your own soul and believe that for God's purple people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Past, present, and future. That Jesus loved the church and ransomed himself. Gave his own life for his bride. Brothers, in the same way that you or I would, would lay down our, our life for our, our wives, would step in front of a bullet, Jesus stepped in front of the wrath of God. He soaked up the penalty for our sins, for the bride whom he loves. Secondly, we see in the passage that Christ cleanses the church so that she would be holy on the day of his return. See, verse 26 continues and says that Jesus died for his church so that he could sanctify her. That means make her holy and cleanse her so that she would be holy as he is holy. And Jesus himself washes the church with the word of God. He purifies us to walk in obedience to his word. Verse 27 says that that Christ is cleansing the bride to present her pure and holy. So that we, the bride, will be without spot. Without stain, without wrinkle, without blemish, showing up on the wedding day, blameless for the bridegroom Jesus. And and as I said, Revelation pictures the return of Jesus as this beautiful union between Christ and the church. This marriage that's going to take place and this marriage celebration that will go on for all of eternity. 
And on that day, man, the bride's going to be beautiful. She'll have her nails done and her hair's done. No, no tanning salon. Like, it'll be an all-natural tan. And she won't even need makeup. The church isn't going to need makeup because the blemishes will all be gone. And, and the church of Jesus Christ will stand before Him on the day of His return, beautiful and glorious. In splendor, in radiance, reflecting the image of Jesus Himself. Paul has this little verse in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. And he's passionate, passionately pleading with the church there. Pleading with them for their purity and their obedience. And Paul says to the church that he loves, he says, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. This man with the heart of Jesus has that heart for the church. Now you say, wait a minute. I've been around the church for more than a few weeks. And, and as, as exciting as this vision is, like, I don't see it, you say. And yes, granted, the church is messy. This vision is not yet fulfilled. And, and let's just be honest, the church is, is full of dirty, imperfect, blemished sinners. We are still in the process of being cleansed. And we will be until the day of the wedding, until the day of Christ's return. And you know what happens when you put a group of still being sanctified Christians together? You know what happens? They're inevitably going to hurt one another. And you know, COVID has reminded us of something. That if you leave the house, there are risks involved. Right? Most of us have, have realized that, that we can never eliminate all risk. We can never eliminate all risk even in coming to church. But I think the greatest risk in your involvement to the local church is not ultimately getting COVID or worse yet, maybe the stomach bug, right? The greatest risk of, of coming to church is that you will at some point maybe be hurt. You might feel disappointed by your expectations of other people. You may at some point even be mistreated, be overlooked, be sinned against, because this beautiful vision of Ephesians chapter 5 is still in progress. And I want to tell you this morning, if, if this describes you and your concern, you've been hurt, you've been disappointed, and you are at arm's length, I pray that the Spirit can work in your heart. I pray that you can find healing and find forgiveness and reconcile. But I would say this. There have been so many hurt by the church. I would say this. Don't give up. Don't give up on the church. Don't give up on Jesus and don't give up on His br bride. Will you join us and be part of the purifying process? Will you help us do better as a church community? Join with us as we pray. God, give us grace. Humble us. Purify us as a church community, both here locally and the church universal across the world. That we could Walk by your Holy Spirit in forgiveness and humility and gentleness and kindness and grace towards one another and grace towards those in the world that are still desperately hurting and yearning for the work of Christ. Thirdly, we see here in the passage that the church submits to Christ as her head. The church loves and has given himself, Christ loves and has given himself for the church so that we could be holy and the church then is called to submit to Christ as her head. See, Jesus loves his bride. He's a faithful husband. He is the savior of the church and the head of the church. And so verse 24 says that we as a community, as a family of God, as his bride, are called to submit to him. 
Now we are talking this morning about the, what I would say are the corporate implications of this passage, right? But there are also more personal, more individual implications for husbands and wives. And yes, men of God, we are called to love our wives as our own bodies. To lay down our lives for our wives on their good days, on their bad days. To love them with the same sacrificial love that Jesus had. To die for them. And and that's the easy part. The hard part is to live for them. Amen? But that's the calling of husbands. And yes, wives, we see in this passage, are called to humbly submit to their husbands as their head. And and, and these, these realities are beautiful, they're necessary, and yes, sometimes, or maybe even a lot of times, really, really hard. But remember, all of this vision for, for our spouses, all of this vision is ultimately patterned after Jesus and His church. Church, we submit to Jesus, yes, as our powerful Creator. Yes, as our Sovereign Lord. Yes, as our merciful Savior. But here we see that we submit to Him as a loving husband. That means we yield to Him as the head of the church. That means we walk in His will. That means our desire is to turn the spotlight on Him. To seek His glory. The bride of Christ. This is our our beautiful calling. I was thinking about this in the context of three different conversations. The last week, I've had three conversations with people at the Y. I'm going to tell you this briefly and then we'll we'll wrap up. The first was a a, a non-Christian woman. No no church background, no, no Christian faith. But she said, one time I tried to pick up the Bible. She said... I heard that other people thought it was interesting. I figured I would try it. She described to me about curtains. I think she got to like Exodus where they started building the tabernacle. And she said, I I just checked out. I couldn't follow it anymore. She gave up. This was years ago, she's telling me. But a few weeks ago, she was on COVID quarantine and she thought, you know what? Maybe I'll, I'll find that Bible and I'll try to read it again. And so a few weeks ago, she started reading the Bible and she said, I wonder where the part is about Jesus. She literally Googled, where is Jesus in the Bible to figure out it was the New Testament. She told me she's been reading the New Testament. She said, I'm almost done. She said, it's very interesting and very helpful. Second conversation I had with, was with a Christian man. And he told me with as much genuineness as... as as I think he could have had, that he loves the Lord, that he's active in his faith, he's active here at the Y, and he shares Christ with others at the Y. He says, but I don't, I'm not involved in a church. He said, every church I've been to, they've got rituals, and, and yes, even here at Living Hope, we have our rituals, right? And you know what he said? He said, man, those rituals are just too boring. He said, I just have no interest. I just have no interest in the church. I don't, I don't need it. Third conversation I had was with a woman who was, who was what I would call spiritually uncertain, and she was as a little kid, went to church with her grandma. And, and when I asked her, she said she still believes in Jesus. When I asked her, she said she still considers herself a Christian. But she went on to tell me how she had become turned off by some of the devastating things that the church had done and, and the ways that the church had hurt her family. And she said she hadn't been for years. And she began to talk how that void had been filled by another set of spiritual beliefs and spiritual practices outside of Christianity. And I asked her, does that Christian identity you had as a kid, how does that relate to these other spiritual practices that have been more common in your life now? Are those things overlapping or in harmony? She said, I just kind of view them as two separate things. Now, three totally different people, totally different ages, phases of life. But you know what they all need? Of course, they they need more time in God's Word. God can speak to them and and, and reveal Himself to them in His Word. 
Ultimately, what they need is, is a powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit, right? To awaken their hearts, to bring them to new life, to, to teach them what it is to genuinely follow Jesus. But if I could give all three of those people in all three of those different phases, if I could give them one gift, you know what it would be? It would be to go and experience a healthy church. Experience a healthy local church. Come see the bride of Christ. Yes, I want them to hear the word of God. Yes, I want them to, to, to hear and receive the gospel. But, but can they see the gospel? Can they see the body of Christ? Can they see the beauty of his bride? The death and resurrection of Christ lived out in gospel community in his church because the church is essential. The church is essential for our growth, brothers and sisters, and the church is essential for the lost. The church is beautiful and Jesus loves the church. He loves his bride. And so should you and I. Friends, if if you love Jesus, I pray that you love his church. And so we're going to invite the worship team now to come again and we're going to worship our Savior Jesus. We're going to worship the head. And as we prepare to do that, we're going to stand and we're going to recite this old ancient Apostles' Creed. We're going to join with with Christians, with the church, the church universal across the centuries that have used the words in this creed to proclaim their faith in God the Father, to proclaim their faith in God the Son, to proclaim their faith in God the Spirit, and to proclaim their faith in the church that they love. And so will you stand with me? I invite you to stand with me and to read these words together. Read with me, church. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again from the dead. He descended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for this ancient creed, this declaration of our biblical faith. And we declare this morning as a community, as a family, as a body, we declare together as a church that we believe. Your Holy Spirit has given us faith, and so we believe in God the Father, our Creator. Our Father, we believe in Jesus Christ, your only Son, who loved us and gave his life for us as individuals and as a, as a church. And we believe that he's coming again. We believe that he rose again and fills our hearts and that he will come again. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come now and heal our church. Help us to live out the vision that you have laid out for us. Help us to be the bride of Christ even now. Wash away those stains and those wrinkles and those spots that we could live in community, that we could forgive when we fall short, that we could be humble, serving, and loving together. And Father, we declare that we believe in the church. We believe in the community of faith. The only hope that we have for the gospel in this world, the keys to the kingdom of heaven, the good news rests in the hands of the church. And so we believe, we lift this song of worship up to you now. Fill us, fill us with your spirit, fill us with faith, humble us, and give us grace to walk in the vision that you have for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together.